The Sermons of St. Francis de Sales for Advent and Christmas. Continuing his sermon for the fourth Sunday of Advent, Penitence. Here is another way of understanding the words. Because their malice has reached its height, their sin shall be forgiven. When they have reached the height, the noontide, the high point of their wickedness and ingratitude, and when all memory of God and his benefits is gone, then their sin shall be forgiven. That is, at that very moment when they deserve to be cast aside, God will pardon them and will no longer remember their wickedness. Certainly, whenever divine providence revealed the greatness of his mercy in the past, it was always in the most surprising ways, when there was nothing to hope for but the fury of his wrath and the terror of his justice, when there was absolutely no human merit or good on which to hope for the Lord's mercy. It was precisely then that he let his awe-inspiring deeds on their behalf shine forth. Indeed, these are examples of God's great goodness to the human family. To bestow his graces upon his creatures. To pardon continually their daily faults against him. And to reward their slightest services with the greatest favors. According to the most true teaching of theology, the one who cooperates with God's first grace disposes himself to receive the second. And by cooperating with the second... He is prepared to obtain the third, and then the fourth, and so on consecutively. Theologians teach that God's grace is never lacking to us, and that if we are faithful in cooperating with the first grace, we are disposed to receive the second, third, and fourth, and in this way to come to participate in the highest benefits and obtain most special favors. For this reason, in many places in Holy Scripture, God recommends to us fidelity in following good impulses, lights, and inspirations. In such, the greatness of his mercy surely shines forth. But when, over and above this, his providence wanted to make an even more glorious revelation of his mercy, it was by a most wonderful deed, one in which he willed that no exterior motive should induce him to act. Urged solely by his goodness, he communicated himself in a wholly marvelous way when he came into this world. The incarnation took place at a time when men were at the height of their wickedness, when the Jews were without king, and the laws were in the hands of Annas and Caiaphas, wicked men, when Herod reigned and Pontius Pilate was governor, when there were no worthy priests, when both priests and people constituted an evil generation. In short, when the world had reached the high point of its wickedness, God came to redeem us and deliver us from the tyranny of sin and the servitude of our enemies. Urged to it solely by His immense goodness, He became incarnate for us. Certainly, the heart of our dear Savior and Master was wholly filled with mercy and kindness for the human family. In this one act, he gave abundant witness to it, as he did on many other occasions in which his clemency shone forth in its beauty and grandeur. When did he pardon St. Paul? When he, he was at the height of his malice, his sins were forgiven him. For everyone knows that at the time of his conversion, 
this apostle was in the throes of his greatest hatred and fury against Jesus Christ. Not able to vent his rage against Jesus himself, he directed his wrath against his church, but with such fury that he foamed with rage like one insane, a madman truly beside himself. It was precisely at that point that our Lord countered his malice and ingratitude with his meekness and infinite mercy, touching him and pardoning all his iniquities at the very moment in which he had completely forfeited such mercy. O oh God, how vast were the riches of your goodness toward that apostle! Nevertheless, we see similar instances of this goodness every day. When sinners are most hardened in their sins, when they have reached the point of living as if there were no God, no heaven or hell, it is often then that the Lord allows them to find his heart, full of pity and kind mercy toward them. I never read of David's conversion without trembling in awe at how he committed such grave sins and remained an entire year in sin without acknowledging the fact as if he were asleep, with no recognition of his terrible crime before God. Perhaps there might have been some excuse for him if he had sinned while still a shepherd tending his sheep. But David grievously offended God after having received very special graces and many inspirations, lights, and favors. God had made him a man after his own heart and allowed him to perform many marvels and prodigies. David had always been nourished in the heart of sweet clemency and divine mercy. And the fact that, despite such great favors, he should have committed such heinous offenses and remained an entire year without acknowledging them, that greatly astounds me. He began with adultery, but that meant little to him. Is it not amazing how unwilling the human spirit is to acknowledge its faults? When guilty of them, it tries to conceal them by committing even more grievous ones. David tried to get the good Uriah drunk. There was more malice in this sin than in the adultery. But when his plan was unsuccessful, Uriah being an upright man and a brave soldier who could not be caught by surprise in such a vice, David decided to commit yet a third fault in order to conceal the first two. This was even more grievous than the first two, for he decided to kill him. He ordered his lieutenant to expose Uriah to the enemy and then abandon him. Although the lieutenant was a just man, he believed himself bound to obey the king's orders, and he did what he was ordered. This affair so entangled poor David that he committed countless other sins, piling one on top of the other and committing the next as a cover-up for the preceding. He remained an entire year enmeshed in his iniquity, never calling to mind his God. There he was, without any inclination whatsoever toward grace. Yet seeing him in this blindness, the divine goodness sent the prophet Nathan, who asked him what he had done and where God was in his life. So blind was David in his own regard that the prophet wisely and subtly brought him round to confess his crime. He spoke to him of some fault that one of his subjects had committed, 
and David passed this judgment on the crime. He stole that poor man's sheep. He must die. This made it clear just how blind and hardened David had become in his own sin. Yet for the faults of others, he knew well how to impose just and proportionate punishment. Nevertheless, God did not abandon him in that condition, but used the prophet Nathan to make him confess his crime. What greater evidence of divine mercy could one desire? For when David was at the height of his malice, God pardoned his iniquities. But what a transformation this conversion resulted in. Acknowledging his fault, this great king kept lamenting and deploring his blindness. He kept repeating, I have sinned, and kept crying out for mercy to the Lord, endlessly repeating, Have mercy on me, O God. There are hundreds of similar examples in Holy Scripture, examples in which God showed the same kind of mercy. We should therefore understand Isaiah's words in this way. The following words of Isaiah, Prepare the way, make straight the paths, had originally been said in reference to the great Cyrus and his delivery of the Israelites from captivity into the promised land. Yet the prophet's principal object in these words was to speak of our Lord's coming. Accordingly, St. John made use of these very words, preaching penitence and announcing to the people that the Savior was near. I am, he said, the voice of him who cries out in the desert, Make straight the way of the Lord. Since the Lord is near, how are we to prepare for his coming? St. John tells us when he says, Do penance, for the Lord is near. Most certainly, penitence is the best disposition for the Savior's coming. Since we are all sinners, we must all take the paths of penitence. But we are now speaking too much in generalities. Let us treat of some particulars in this matter. St. John gives some particulars in today's Gospel. Make straight the way of the Lord. Fill up the valleys, lower the mountains and hills. They, as well as the ditches and valleys, trouble travelers. Make straight the paths. Those that twist and turn fatigue the pilgrim greatly. Our life, too, contains many hills, valleys, and tortuous ways which can be put right only by penitence. Penitence fills up the valleys, lays low the mountains, makes straight and smooths the ways. Do penance, says St. John. Lower those mountains of pride. Fill up those valleys, those ditches of lukewarmness and tepidity. The valleys which the glorious St. John wants us to fill up are none other than fear, which, when it is excessive, leads to discouragement at the sight of our sins. Fill up the valleys. That is, fill your heart with confidence and hope, because salvation is near at hand. The sight of our great faults brings with it a certain horror and shock, a certain fear and terror which unnerves the heart and often leads it to discouragement. These are the ditches and valleys that must be filled up for our Lord's coming. This has been taken from The Sermons of St. Francis de Sales for Advent and Christmas, translated by the nuns of the Visitation 
and edited by Father Louis S. Fiorelli, OSFS. Published in 1987 by Tan Books and Publishers Incorporated, Rockford, Illinois, and aired with permission of the publisher. This book may be purchased online at www.tanbooks.com or by calling toll-free 1-800-437-5876.